Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. Today's episode is for you fellow space nerds out there, because today I am speaking to Tim Dodd, aka the Everyday Astronaut. Now, Tim is one of these rare minds who can take incredibly complex topics, such as orbital mechanics or rocket science itself, and make it accessible for everyday people. And he's grown an incredibly successful platform, particularly a YouTube channel known as The Everyday Astronaut, a passion project which took him from a casual space fan into recently being selected to go on the Dear Moon project that will take him on a rocket around the moon in the next few years. So as well as hearing about what it's like to be selected for such an incredible mission, we also know out on rocket design. We also hear about his insights of what it takes to build such a successful YouTube channel. So, so much good stuff. I absolutely love this. I think you will too. Let's dig in. Ten years ago, you were a wedding photographer with a passing interest in space. And now you are going to the moon, or at least you're going to be going around it on Starship, a six-day mission uh, with eight other astronauts, Mm -hmm. including Steve Aoki, Yuzaku Maezawa, and then you're going to come back to Earth six days later. What? (laughs) (laughs) How has this happened? Oh, man. Uh, to try to connect a, a line from point A and B in that storyline is actually really hard. Right. Well, let's let's just try and thread the needle a bit. So you you were shooting weddings, mm-hmm. but you do have a background in engineering, right? No. I thought you were a motorcycle engineer. Wikipedia does still say that I was a motorcycle mechanic. Okay. Okay. But that was just I, I liked to work on motorcycles. I used to fix them up, and like when I was uh, eighteen, nineteen, you know, I'd tear down bikes and get them fixed up, and liked working on cars and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm actually like a three, four, five time college dropout. Just kept dropping out. How do you drop out of college five times? You just go and then say this sucks, and you don't go back, and then you're like, yeah, your parents are like, you better get back in there, you know? How <laughs> you gotta go to college? All right, I'll try it again. Um, yeah, so no, I don't have a degree in anything. Um, I didn't have a degree in photography either. I was self-taught photography. Um, and when I started really kind of falling in love with space flights, all because I, I bought a, it's not all because, I, I bought a spacesuit online as a joke because I thought it'd be a fun prop kind of. And like I was starting to get into space flight, so I was seeing all these things. And I was like, oh, this would be fun. And it's not technically a spacesuit. It's a high-altitude flight suit, a VMS K45 from like a MIG. Mm-hmm. But it's like the pumpkin suit looking thing. It's very similar to like, you know, what the first four uh, space shuttle missions would have looked like. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I just, I, I wanted to take photos and do an art project with the spacesuit basically as like a whimsical everyday astronaut character. And uh, that process of like trying to hide Easter eggs and and make more than just like, you know, art, I wanted to make it like historically accurate and all these, you know, hide all these history things in it made me just like obsessed with it. And I was really, and at the same time, you know, this is 2013, 2014, that's when SpaceX was working on trying to land rockets. And so I'm starting to also, you know, in that same timeline, I'm also watching this type of thing happen. And it just so happened that I uh, ended up asking, you know, if trying to get credentialed to go shoot a launch. The first launch I ever shot was a SpaceX launch. It was CRS-3. And it was the first rocket that SpaceX put landing legs on. And that just set me off. 
from that moment on, I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I want everyone to get excited about this. The mission that you're going on is called Dear Moon. Yep. You're not going to be landing on the moon, right? Correct. You're going to be doing a loop a around flyby, it. flyby, yep. Yeah, a flyby, which is insane because <laughs> no human has been out there since, what, the 70s? 1972. What was the sort of audition process for this, for this mission? It was supposed to be invite only, I thought, kind of. Like it was originally this vision of Yusaku Maezawa um, did a, a press event with SpaceX at SpaceX headquarters. I was there as a member of press shooting this event and like having tears in my eyes thinking this is like the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard because it's like Willy Wonka for space. You know, here's a, a generous person that was offering up rides to go to the moon with him just as a way to like help inspire. And at first it kind of seemed like it was going to be this like, I'm going to ask uh, an artist, I'm going to ask a painter, I'm going to ask a dancer, I'm going to ask, you know, it sort of seemed that way. And I don't know if that was always the intention or, or what happened, but at some point in early 2021, I think, um, they ended up having a public call of like, hey, we're looking for people to go to the moon with us. And so they started, they had a website all, you know, made, I mean, it, it was pretty impressive because they had over a million applicants. And so... From there, then they weeded it down to a certain number. And then they had, I think, like 50,000 or 100,000 something video submissions that were like round two. From the video submissions, they got it down to like a thousand or something or a few hundred. I don't even remember anymore, but it's just chipping away. And like each step of the way, like soon it became Zoom calls and then group Zoom calls and, uh, you know, medical checkouts and like all of these things. And slowly each time, like you get to the next like round, even it wasn't like a formal, you didn't know you were in a round per se. It's just like, hey, we're having a call. Uh, can you schedule a call with us? And it was probably six, 10, 12 call. I don't remember. It was a lot. And each time like a new one got on the books, I was like, kind of get myself, let myself get a little bit more excited of like, this actually might be happening, you know? What was the moment like when you found out you'd been selected? It was kind of a convergence because by that point I was already, I knew that my odds were like, you know, better than 50-50. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, because of the number of people left in that that final submission process. So I would slowly let myself get more and more. So by that time, you know, it's not like it was a one in a million at that point. Right. It was down to 50, 50, 50. And I also knew that, um, I knew, actually I'd met the Dear Moon team before that open submission process. And they came up and like, hey, we watch your videos and you help us learn about Dear Moon. And like, and so I was like, That's a good sign. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, kind of have a foot in the door a little bit. So yeah. the whole time I, I did, I did honestly like work with a little bit of a bias, thinking that like maybe, maybe I have a foot in the door, you know, already. Mm. Of like, I this is this is the world I live in already, you know, with the space flight stuff. And and if they think that I do a good job of explaining things to people, then maybe I have a, a good shot of of explaining the trip around the moon to people, you know, basically. So that, yeah, so so when it did finally happen, and they're like, you know, uh, Yusaku, they kind of turned the, if I remember right, they turned the laptop and Yusaku was sitting there, which was unusual. And he just basically goes, Tim, will you go to the moon with me? And I was just like, you know, I, I was ready for it, potentially, but I was still just speechless. I mean, what do you say? I got goosebumps even. Just I mean, what do you say to that? You know, obviously besides like, of course, like <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this without, you know. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And uh, I was, I just sat there for a while. I don't, I actually don't even remember my reaction, to be honest. I would love, I think they filmed it. I hope it's, I don't remember. I feel like at some point I actually just stood up and like walked away, just like, is this real, you know? Right, because it must be one of those things that then, I don't even know if it sinks in straight away. Did it? Did it slowly over time? Well, you know, it's funny. It's 
because it's so still so far away and it's still like, and by far away, we're still talking like maybe a, you know, a year or two, three years, four or five years, whatever, whatever, however fast Starship's ready. Right. It, you know, it's imminent in my time scale as a human. Um, but like, I still don't even let myself like get that excited about it yet. Have you still did any training? No, yet? not yet. Right. And that's kind of why I think. So each level of that will make it more real and more like tangible, mm-hmm. you know? So even when it happened and even like, yes, and all of that, I still had a, you know, a part of me's garden, a part of me's like, I don't think about it that often. Like literally it was like a month ago, I was on air on stream and I'm like, isn't it just crazy? I'm talking about, I was talking about artist mission or the next Artemis mission. I'm like, isn't it nuts that people are going back to the moon in our lifetime? Like people are actually going to get on a rocket. They're going to go to the moon. And I'm like, this hyping up Artemis too. Just never once remembering that like, I'm going to be one of those people like in the very near future, you know? So I don't think about it that often yet, but mm-hmm. I know that obviously, you know, as it, as you know, as things get closer and as we start actually doing proper training and things like that, it will obviously start to feel more real and be more present in the front of my mind too. I've been to a few of the Starship tests, um, and you know, I've seen it explode, felt it explode. You're just not yeah. even just seeing it; it's like an actual feeling. Like when that shockwave <laughs> hits you, it's like, whoa, that's, that's a big boy. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of energy. Yes. Obviously, Starship is still in the R and D phase. It's still testing. Um, you know, so it's these these explosions are to be expected, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's all about the learning process. But what you know, I'm I'm an obsessive of probabilities. What is the level of sort of probability of success that you will be comfortable with, to knowing that you're getting on it and be like, okay, this is fine. Speaking statistically, I'm expecting well over ninety nine percent. You okay. know, like. I, um, and which at this point now, like even if you were to say ride on top of just the Falcon 9 booster, you know, like not the spacecraft or anything, like if you put on a spacesuit and rode the booster and flew and landed, you'd be like, uh, you know, they, they haven't crashed. They've like successfully landed over 200 in a row now. Like now they've wow. kind of figured it okay. out. So yeah, well over it's 99, like, yeah. It's just like, oh, this is actually, in, and it's not even like meant to be, like it's not even like redundant in a lot of systems and mm. stuff. It's just like, yeah, they're just that good at it. So even with like a 200 streak, I'm like, I would don't, I would consider riding on a Falcon 9 booster and like propulsively land with a Falcon 9 because it's that reliable, you know? And, um, you know, the, the space shuttle was 98.5% successful. Um, that's a little too not good for me. You know what I mean? Like I think about that as like, man, after, after Columbia, would I have gotten on top of the space shuttle? You know, and then at mm-hmm. that point, statistically, like that was 100 and whatever, I don't know, on like 11 out of 135 or something. So it was like, and so they'd already lost two. So it was more like, you know, 98.3 or whatever the, the statistics are there. Um, that, so I would have been, re- I mean, I'm not going, I'm not doing this with any thought really of like certain death. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people are like, well, there's a death sentence. Like, no, I would absolutely not get on it if I, right. if I believe that. And if, the, and if the engineering wasn't to that capability of like, this is a certain, a probable certain certainty of like, this will succeed, obviously. I'm not trying to risk my life. I'm not like a daredevil in that aspect. It's like I will only do this if I feel comfortable and we've seen we've seen it flight proven, you know, and I expect to see that flight profile flown before we get on it even. Presumably the actual once you know, once you're out beyond Earth's orbit, that part of the mission is fairly chill, right? Is yeah. it, what are the forces like going when you do the loop around the moon? As is that going to be as soon as you do your your translunar injection? Like mm-hmm. as soon as you are doing your your burn of like I think it's like a three thousand more meters per second from low Earth orbit, 
after that acceleration phase, the whole thing feels like free fall. Right. Because it's all There's your, no forces. Even even when yeah. you're actually Yep, doing, it's all relative. Like your body and the object you're inside are all in the same relative motion. Right. So even though you're both being pulled by the moon's gravity a little bit harder at some points than they would be, you know. Right. It's the same, it's it's the same the force same. on both of you. Exactly. Yes, so totally. you won't feel any you're different. You're not feeling any thrust. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, little maneuvers, uh, corrections and things like that you would feel, of course. Um, and that's only because the thing you're inside moved and then it eventually will run into you because it did move. And so then you feel that and then you're now you're being pushed along by it, you know, um, which is just the weirdest thing. I, I'm really looking forward to some of those like, Weird like times of your brain's like, what is that? Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> or like waking up and be like, what? oh, I'm in space. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, imagine that just waking up and being a little confused. Like, I need to go to the bathroom. Oh wait, this oh, is yeah. the most alien environment in, uh, any like, human can be in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what's the main purpose of the mission? I, you know, you mentioned that it's artists going on there. What What is your goal mm-hmm. that you hope to achieve? Well, first, and I don't mean to answer for you, Saku, but his big vision and the whole reason he's doing this is kind of the idea that, you know, when humans went in the you know late 60s and 70s, it was not necessarily meant as just purely inspire the world. And it was representative of one country and, you know, white, old, not old men, but white men, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it was just sort of like easy for United States, you know, people from the U.S. to be all excited about this and rally around it. But like for, you know, a, a kid in Japan, it might not have the same effect, right? The idea being also that those people weren't allowed the freedom because they were at, uh, had a lot of tasks at hand of, of flying this mission. Uh, they weren't necessarily the most you know, creative and, and sitting there like helping to explain their experiences. They're quite focused on the mission. So the idea is like this is an opportunity to bring people on this mission to inspire the world, like first and foremost. So how do we do that? We have to have people that represent totally different disciplines, different parts of the world and all just come together to create something kind of together. So for me, you know, my goal is to document and kind of do what I do down here on earth, explain rocket science and do live streams and film and explain everything the best I can. You're going to live stream? We're going to sure try. And by then, by then Starlink should be, um, you know, Starlink will be tested on Polaris one with Jared Isaacman and his crew. Um, They're going to be testing Starlink on dragon, which, you know, it's not necessarily the, the delay. Like, there's always going to be the, the speed of light delay. Like, by the time you're out to the moon, of like one and a half seconds, so three seconds round trip. But the big thing right now that's missing is is bandwidth. So, mm. you know, right now we're we're relying on either ground stations, ground links, or the TDRS, which is a, an old uh, I don't even remember what it stands for, but it's a very old like archaic uh, relay data relay with like NASA. You know, and it's um, it's just not. It's not cut out bandwidth. for 4K. Exactly. It literally like is incapable of, of high bandwidth, you know, so having Starlink and I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if they have to have some pointing outwards or I think they're laser link Starlinks actually. So they should be capable of like literally gigabit, you know, like we should be able to have a fairly normal like life in space around the moon. Just can't even imagine like yeah. that. Cause that's, I mean, I, we weren't alive during the, the initial Apollo missions. Right. But those were I mean, they still managed to generate a lot of worldwide interest yeah. with crappy black and white TV. Definitely. Yeah. So you beaming straight down 4K, through your YouTube like, channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn, you're going to get some subs from that. <laughs> I mean, I hope that we can do something that hasn't been done before. You know, I mean, there because there have been streams from space. There have been, obviously, there's 
the International Space Station, and NASA does a great job of of doing uh, you know public awareness and things like that. But um, I think we're going to be able to do things that are just totally different and have a, an interactivity that hasn't really been able to been, be done before. Just because, again, even NASA astronauts are like tasked with. I mean, they wake up and they their whole day is like an itinerary mm-hmm. of everything is like by the minute. Um, a lot of research and science is done and yeah, checklists do these experiments. And, yes. and cleaning and like, two hours of working out every day, like very regimented. And like, we won't have to do it. <laughs> you know, we're more or less tourists. Because it's all going to be automated, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. You're not really going to have to do much. I mean, you probably have to do, so, you need to know some basic maintenance, yeah. but yeah. it's only a six day mission. Right. Like, How much can go wrong? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, I'll, I will gladly learn as much as I possibly can. You know, I would love to like step up and like, and be like, train me, like, let me do whatever, you know, let right. me fly, um, whatever I can do. But I, I also understand, and I, this isn't for certain, and I'm, I, I'm not sure, but I, I do think there might be professional astronaut on board as well, which would be great. And, and Yusaku, who's already flown to the International Space Station, he's already spent, you know, I think it was 10 days on the ISS. So How did he get up there, Soyuz? Yep, or? he went up on Soyuz in in twenty at the end of twenty twenty one. Oh, that recently. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's so he's he already he trained yeah. for six months. I mean, he's knows his stuff. That's yeah. comforting. It really is. It genuinely is. And his videos, honestly, like his videos in space are just the most fascinating and fun. And he is just so delighted and such like it's just like a kid in a candy store. Every video, and they're all like really. I'm surprised it didn't get like maybe it's maybe in Japan, people more people saw it, and it is uh, natively Japanese, so you have to use subtitles. Um, but their team did a great job of subtitling everything. But it is fun and like hilarious, and did really really cool things too. And I'm like, dang, why, how did not everybody hear about this? You know. So talk about more about why space, why inspiring people about space travel and space exploration is so important because it doesn't it definitely feels a bit like there's almost like a generational gap or something mm-hmm. like oh generation millennials like we're we're pretty into it but it feels like almost the older generations are more excited about space than maybe I'm projecting but then like gen z right. uh, and so on so what is it that you think is so important about space exploration in my opinion Pushing the boundaries of engineering is always going to result in like a better humanity, period. You know what I mean? Um, when you have a generation of people that are problem solving for huge, huge monumental impossibilities, you just don't even know what that can do. You know, like the Apollo program literally altered the entire course of human history, not at all because of putting footprints on the moon. Like that had nothing to do with like long term, in my opinion, that's still incredible, beautiful poetic, all that, thi- all that stuff, but that's not at all the real impact of the Apollo program. You look at like literally Silicon Valley and, 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 and the programming and the mathematicians and the engineers that came out of the, the Apollo program, and you look at the U.S.'s like GDP, you know, I mean, it, we, we absolutely invested in engineering and in, in education, and look at what it did to us. I mean, mm. we <laughs> just shot to the top as a, as a nation. And you think that's in part because of winning the space, or just the space race in general? 400,000 people became engineers, you know, within like an eight-year span or whatever. Uh, and tons of problems, just things, new things were invented. You know, software mm-hmm. was literally invented. Oh, I see. The, the, the whole The whole term and of, the existence of, of, of software right. was 
the Apollo program, you know? Right, computation. Yes. It basically kick, got, like, kick it got, started, got kickstarted. Got kickstarted and then like just absolutely uh, ramped up because of the Apollo program. You know, we're talking about a, a, an era where, you know, things were like hand-sewn, in, like bits and, and data was literally hand-sewn into computers and they still figured out how to go to the moon with that. You know, you think about the problem solving there. And then, so in my opinion, you have all of this talent, knowledge, and education and then is you know even when that even if that all topples even if all the space topples you still have all of that you know to spread out into the world so you now have people that are like oh i you know i i actually know everything about composites you know you don't know what that person will do with that knowledge mm-hmm. outside of the space flight realm but you know it has created in my opinion like this huge boom in the US um and 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 everywhere that that's happened too you know you look at uh, right now india is going through kind of a renaissance of of a generation that's really excited about spaceflight. And, um, you know, that ge- it gives you a goal of like, I want to work at, you know, at, at NASA or ESA or um, Israel. And I, I want to, you know, do these amazing things. And it gives, I just think it gives a tangible goal um, and a reason to like further your own education, your own knowledge. Um, I think first and foremost, it almost is like a, and, and I look at it as like, you know, people ask all the time, like, well, why, what, why don't we spend this money, you know, trying to, you know, solve world hunger and do all these, you know, important things here on Earth? Absolutely. How? How do you do that? I have no idea. Right. Obviously, collective humanities has not quite figured that out yet. But you know what we can figure out? What if we solved how to send a human to Mars on a two-year journey in a desolate place that has... Uh, that will absolutely kill the person within hours if you don't do everything right, uh, and and find out how to feed uh, and and breathe Text and do and, yeah. all of the things and physically live on this horrible environment and bring them back safely. Now, I'm not saying we need to go to Mars to solve like all of Earth's problems, but you just have no idea what technologies will be created trying to solve that. And sometimes when you like knife edge something, it ends up like opening up this whole other world of possibilities. I think a lot of people don't realize the extent, of, like so many of the technologies we have now, like memory foam mattresses. Right. Yeah. That's a result of space, yep. you know, the space industry. Yep. That was a, something that was invented for that. Cordless tools. Water filtration systems. You know, they, you have to have damn good water filtration if you're going to live in space. Solar um, and battery and fuel cells were all like absolutely, uh, you know, I think they, I'm pretty sure all of those things existed. I know all of them existed before the Apollo program, but again, got like magnified and like, you know, tenfold more Im- improved throughout the Apollo program. Um, and it's, again, it's not about these specific one technologies. I'm not like, well, if we do this, we'll end up with a rebreather that can make it so we can pollute the planet and then CO2, you know, it's not a thing. It's the unknown unknowns. It's the unknown unknowns and the grand, can- huge, big picture of everything that we just have no idea. Right, it's, it's investment in the discovery of knowledge, essentially. 100%. And it's like, yes. you need to... The most discoveries of knowledge come when you are pushing on the frontier and like mm-hmm. space is like the classic physical frontier. Exactly. What always annoys me is when people quote, oh, this is, you know, this, uh, the Artemis mission is going to be $93 billion. It's like, okay, yeah, that's spread out over years and it's going to get humans onto the moon and probably hopefully get, we'll get a, an actual base out of it, which is going to open up a whole new economy. And let's, again, let's put this $93 billion into context. Guess how much we spent to bail out those banks in 2008? Naughty bankers who were ripping people off. And how they, many F thirty fives were that? Exactly. Like, buy too, like yeah. So it was seven hundred billion dollars was the the bailout of oh. those banks in two thousand eight. One time bailout from the taxpayer. 
NASA's annual budget is 25 billion. The annual military budget is around 790 billion. Yeah. So that's like 30x more. Yes. That's the one that's always like, just seems like. Yes. If you're going to complain about one, like, there's yeah, a lot like, bigger fish to fry. Right. In that, and I mean, in that I'm picture. not saying we need, we do, I do think that defense budgets are important. But again, like, this is, you know, NASA is strictly peaceful and it's more likely to create t- technologies yes. whose, whose economic impacts trickle down to people. Yes. Whereas 100%. defense budgets, okay, it's like kind of defending and that's important. Yes. But like, but that's still ultimately that degree, going yeah. into war. Like one percent of that budget would do so much more than reducing NASA's budget by one percent, just because of the sheer numbers. Oh, another fun one. So the Mars Curiosity mission, mm-hmm. uh, two point five billion. Mm-hmm. Americans spend that much on coffee every ten days. That's insane. Every ten days, roughly, and it is, it's that's that's a conservative estimate as well. Wow. I chose a like lower lower bound. We also spend more on beauty products per year than we currently do on the space industry. They're oh, about yeah. comparable. They're about that, comparable. So it's like, you know, I don't get me wrong. I, I think we should have beauty products. Right. They're great, but right. it's like you can't just cherry pick and be like, oh. Because I don't notice people complaining about how much people spend on lipstick and saying, right. "Oh, we should be spending that on ending poverty." Right, or, exactly. It's like you cut. So why why does this one get? Why picked does that on? always get picked on? And and it is like it is funny that it's it is always like a this or that instead of like an and. Right. Like, well, why can't we have NASA and also be solving problems? Like, it's not that's not how these always are, you know. No. And I, yeah. I think it comes down to a little bit this like fixed pie mentality mm-hmm. or something. It's like this. I think a lot of people believe that the economy, when you know, when the economy grows, they think it. Well, they they, they just don't believe that that's a concept. They think that when someone gets rich, it, they're taking they it, from it from someone else. Every, yes, and correct. it's like, I mean, that's that that sometimes happens. That's what crime is technically. Right, right. Crime is you are ex- being extractive. You are taking yep. without adding value. You are yep. taking from the system for self enrichment. Yep. Generally, when you build a business that a lot, that turns you into a billionaire, that is because you've added value to yes. hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of people's lives. Right. And like you can genuinely, through intellectual effort, create new stuff that genu- yes. genuinely creates more value yes. for the world. And that's why ec- the economy grows. grows. And to me, the space industry is the ultimate example of something that grows mm-hmm. the pie, literally, because yes. it grows our frontier of what we can do and where we can go. 100%. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that's useful. Asteroids. Oh, 100%. Yummy. I can't wait. There, the uh, Just a few weeks ago, we launched the Psyche mission, which is, uh, a, it was launched on Falcon Heavy. It's a, a NASA mission to a metal asteroid. And we don't know a lot about it, um, which is, oh, that's the most exciting thing. But you look at like the numbers of it and you start to look at like feasibility of even if you brought back, you know, 10, like 10 tons of it, which is yes, a lot, but um, you know, ten tons of like platinum, and all of a sudden you're like, ten tons of platinum. Now we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. You know, this is tangibly of value out in space. You know, like it could be who know you know who knows what it is and all that stuff. But the point being, like, there is um, earthly value in space as well as space value in space. So these you know asteroids could be you know metals could be used to create new spacecraft, create bases, create. All these other things. Water can be used to create fuel and and oxygen, uh, as well as just being water to live off of, and all of these other things. So um, there's a lot of value out in space, and especially as that space economy grows. I think another area that is underappreciated as well is the actual just value of aspiration, especially in you know it feels like the world is getting very hostile to itself. 
There's a lot of tension. Geopolitics is getting whacker and whacker every day. Um, and people are getting despondent about the future. I don't know, like, maybe I'm just uh, being excessively romantic here, but the idea of, like, people looking up and seeing the moon and knowing that there are humans on that, especially if it's, like, you know, an actual base that is multinational, kind of like an ISS, but mm -hmm. in, on the moon, mm -hmm. and even more multinational, you know, people from every continent on yeah. there, living there. It's hard to try and quantify what that aspirational value is, but I think it could be exceptionally large and often, under, you know, it's, it's neglected. I don't, have you ever read uh, Andy Weir's book, Artemis, by any chance? No. It's phenomenal. Okay. And it deals with basically, a, I won't spoil too much, but it's like humans live, on, live and work on, on the moon. And it's a realistic, that's what I love about Andy Weir's writing. It's like, it's set up in like a reality-based, you know, situation where you actually are like, this could make sense. And like, I could actually imagine this happening. And it does sort of help paint that, like that romantic version of like, you know, there's people that live there and here and like, we're all the same species yet. We're like separated by, you know, 238,000 miles or whatever. And it's just, there's something just beautiful about that. And then if you imagine uh, humans going out and, and being able to walk on other planets and live on Mars and um, someday, you know, even further beyond that, like it's, it starts to be, wow, you know, look at what we can collectively do as humans and look at what uh, we've been able to figure out. I mean, that's just, it's incredible. And we're, that's at the root of it. That's, humans are always meant to explore. You know, as soon as literally crossing the stream or crossing uh, the mountains and crossing the ocean and all of these things, we've always done this as a species, like just spread out and see, push those boundaries, go to the deepest parts of the, the ocean, go to the highest parts of, of that. And space is obviously like quite literally... The you next know, step. The next step is the final frontier. You know, it's like it's it is that for a reason. And then I love too that that does once you leave Earth, like that is you realize like that is all of us right there on that little ball. You know, there's no more borders of like you don't see the border between the United States and Canada. You know, you don't see the border between Iraq and Iran. Like it's just all land. It's all humans. We're all one species living on this little fragile little rock. And I just think the more people truly understand that and really live that or know someone that's lived that or, you know, that really sinks in, it, it helps, you know, these, yeah, the, the whole like feeling of like we're fighting over the thing that we're all on. Like we're all literally sharing this. Why are we killing each other over it? It mm -hmm. just seems so barbaric in a sense. And also, you know, for people who are, because there seems to be a correlation again between people who are like, well, going to Mars is, it's wasteful and it's abandoning Earth. And it's like, I mean, first of all, I think that's completely false. It's not abandoning Earth at all. Um, it's not like everyone is going there. Right. Um, and again, as and if we did, Earth would be fine. By the way, Earth would be much better off if we all just went to Mars. So, <laughs> But it's also, if, if you are wanting to preserve Earth and like reduce, solve a lot of the problems, then by finding new space for people to actually go and exist and build new stuff and so on, like that is taking the pressure off, off Earth. Off Earth, 100%. As well. you, are you familiar? Like, this is actually Jeff Bezos's like, big vision of space. His, no, and it's not, I wish so bad that he actually spoke more about space or was just in the public light about space because his vision's actually incredible. Yeah, he's really quiet on it. Super quiet. And, like, and so was his company, Blue Origin, besides like New Shepard, which no one seems to care about, which is fine. Uh, they're really quiet about what they do in general. But his vision for space is actually incredible. He really wants to move heavy industry off Earth. And make it so anything that's like polluting and and all of those things are just Brilliant. done in space, and then Earth can be like a sanctuary. 
Yeah. And like you start sitting there, you're like sitting in our own backyard. Exactly. It's like, yeah, like, like, let's do it where there's no life and it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Like, oh, if we, you know, have a bunch of toxic chemicals all over, just float, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And here it matters, you know? And you sit there and you're like, wait a minute, that's actually a it's a really good point. You know, and the more you start to think of Earth as a sanctuary and and space as like a a, a workplace almost, like yeah. a, an, an industrial workplace, you're like. So I imagine some people might feel a re, sort of a repulsion to that idea because I think they associate, you know, because of the pollution that humans create in their in our activities. You know, we do um, we do tend to uh, sully areas that are like untouched. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people therefore see, and I mean, I can identify with this. Like, I don't like the idea of us going and now messing up Mars. You know, right. to an extent, like it would be very sad. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think what people don't appreciate, you know, especially when they're like, oh, humans are going to go and colonize and spread their filth throughout the universe. It's like, okay, but if it's a dead planet, if there's like literally no life on there, like I understand if we get there and it turns out there's life, okay, shit, let's not go yeah. do, this is not our, where our we do our place. industry yeah. either. Yes. But assume it's a dead planet. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know, like what, what are we, what are we spoiling here? And, and even in Jeff's vision is just to keep things in like low meteor orbit, like a, have space stations that are just factories. Mm. So you're not even like having to go colonize anywhere or anything. You're building the stuff that's just kind of gross out where no one sees it, like literally where no one sees it, you know, and not. It's not interfering with any it's biosystem. It's not interfering with yeah. anything. And it just makes sense. Like when, yeah. And uh, we have to be careful. Like, yeah, I mean, I do imagine a world where we land on Mars and we have, uh, diapers and stuff like all over the place, like mm. literally, because if you're doing EVAs, you'd be wearing a diaper and then you have <laughs> hundreds of hundreds of diapers. Like, what do you, so now it's just a pile of diapers and like, that's what we did for Mars. Yay. You know, like some of that logistics is dumb and it sucks. And it's just the reality of what it would actually be like if we went to Mars. Um, but like in the greater good of things, like I think, uh, I think that's, uh, right. That's a drop in the ocean again yeah. with, uh, and, it might force people to develop better waste disposal methods, which, guess what, would then come back to Earth because information is freely travels. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when it's NASA specifically, also, it's always public domain, which is great, that technology. So explain what that means specifically. So um, anything that NASA develops is not like uh, uh, ITAR, like a tre- like International uh, Treaty of Arm Regulations or whatever it is. So any like non-weapon material uh, is considered like public domain. So anyone can... Use NASA research, uh, use NASA developed products. So um, again, like memory foam, perfect example. Um, there's also a there's I think there's sometimes there are timelines on some of these things or something, but uh, there's a, a a rubber and like a a Kevlar rubber mesh thing that they used uh, to try to develop a space station or a habitat module uh, years ago, and it ended up like NASA never did it, but they developed it. And then, uh, I don't know, probably six or seven years ago, Bigelow Aerospace, who no longer exists now, they actually just took that and they're like, well, NASA didn't do it, we'll build it. And they built it and sent it up to the ISS. So now the ISS has like this expandable module that all of the work was actually developed by NASA originally, and then they just like built it. <laughs> and it Amazing. works great. And it's now kind of the ISS's closet. Um, but it's that type of thing where it's like there's technology that's literally just like sitting there that we can like physically utilize, you know? So... This is a podcast about competition. And I'd love to understand your thoughts a bit more on the role that competition has played within the space industry so far. Because, I mean, we did have, you know, a fairly obviously huge competition, which was the space race between, you know, USA and Soviets that got people on the moon um, and you know, kick-started the, the space industry the, as a whole. 
Um, but I suspect there are some rumblings of unhealthy competition starting to emerge. So I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are. So, yeah, there's there's always been competition, like you said. And frankly, I mean, we need to set the record straight, by the way, with the space race. The Soviets kicked our butts in really? absolutely everything until it came to landing on the moon. First person in space. Not just first person in space, first person in orbit. Yuri right. orbited on his on the first launch. First when animal we, in orbit as well, right? First animal, uh, first EVA, first uh, multiple people in space, first, I think, three people in space. First, they kind of did the first rendezvous, although they didn't like get like quite like the Gemini program did, but they did technically both in the same orbit within like visual line of distance. So I consider that a rendezvous. Um, they, I mean, just so many things were just like way ahead of us. And then we kind of leapfrogged when we built the Saturn V and, and that worked out, whereas opposed to the Soviets, N1 was uh, kind of prone to fail from the very beginning, at least initially. Um, but had it not failed, uh, that would have been, and, and had uh, Sergei Korelyov not died, which he died right in the middle, like it was like 1967 or 68, right in the middle of the N1's development, maybe it was even 69, in the middle of the N1's development. If he, he hadn't was the died. Lead, the lead engineer? Yeah, the lead, like he was like the head of the, of the Soviet space program. And also the, the visionary behind the N1 rocket. And the N1 ended up flying four times. All of them failed. None of them made it through the first stage burn. But it's future plans already like that were already being like worked on. I mean, I think they would have absolutely figured it out. And then they would have had a, a moon-capable rocket within like 1972, 73, 74, like very soon after us. I wonder if that hadn't failed. Like, would we still have been flying for a little bit longer to, mm. you know, imagine if the Soviets had landed on the moon? And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, crap, they're, they're there too now. Well, we better keep sending them up. Like, we can't have them doing this too, you know? Um, which, by the way, their landing system was insane. It was going to have, it was only two people, I think, for the whole mission, if I remember right. Um, but one person uh, orbits the moon, and the other person goes out alone and lands on the moon alone. Oof. And they first were, were to fly like a beacon, basically like a little rover that that is like a beacon to be able to land so they can land safely. And if I, oh, I, it's been a while since I've, I've thought about this, but um, if I remember right, they even were going to have like a backup lander there. So in case the one failed, like they had a lot of cool redundancies that mm. the US didn't have, a ton of like multiple engines, multiple motors um, for getting off the moon even. So it was like a totally, totally different, like you're alone. And even to get between the, uh, basically like the little like capsule, Soyuz capsule, I don't remember if it actually is Soyuz or not, but, and the, and the lunar lander, uh, you had to do a, an EVA. There wasn't like a way to like dock between the two and like actually transfer between the two. So they just docked and then they like, we're just going to EVA to the <laughs> other one and like then go and land on the moon. It's just super different. So I'd always wondered like if they had kept going and actually had success, would the Saturn V had stopped? Would we have developed that further? Would we have had a, a more efficient, better rocket after that in the United States? Would it have spurred you know, more competition in, in communication and, and all of these other you know, things that we're starting to see now, like Starlink you know, and all these things? Because it does feel like space just took a pause for about mm -hmm. 25 years or something. I would say feels like it took a pause for about 40 years. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the shuttle program like did a lot of cool stuff, but didn't really advance things. It no. kind of just plateaued it, in my opinion. Just kept it alive. Right, like a human hasn't been beyond, like, I mean, middle earth, you know, medium earth yeah, orbit not even. in yeah. how long? 30, 40 years? 51 years. And the highest people have been so far since then, besides Hubble, wait, nope, yes, uh, Inspiration4, all public or all private, uh, you know, privately funded mission with SpaceX uh, in 2020, 
end of 2021, they went higher than the Hubble Space Telescope, which is the highest anyone had been since the the, pro, the moon program. Right. And so, like, private industry, you know, it took people. So you think that's because basically the the competitive force of the of this, the original Apollo missions died out. I mean, we, it was kind of been there, done that, and realistically, there wasn't a big reason to keep doing it, and there wasn't a like a, a motive of uh, you know there really wasn't an industry backing spaceflight yet. There wasn't the internet, you know, there there wasn't the communication uh, necessary like we have now. You know, I mean, we had we've had satellite relays for TVs and stuff for a, a while now, um, and you know, once you do that, it's like, well, how many of those do you actually need? So maybe we needed the internet to have the economic reason reason to go out there. The the aspirational value alone wasn't sufficient. I would say it's because it's always been so cost prohibitive for uh, you know a kilogram to orbit has just been astronomical, and now um, it's primarily SpaceX has lowered that cost by tenfold already, um, and looking to not slow that down at all. And they're taking advantage of their own cost savings to put up, you know, a constellation of, of internet satellite, uh, satellite internet, so that anyone around the world can access the internet with a thing from a box, like a pizza-sized box, and you can have internet anywhere. And people don't seem to understand just how incredible that is and how, uh, it's so funny how they are, they're leaning on their own technology to give them an advantage, a competitive advantage in the world of like satellite internet which is again been a thing forever. It's always sucked. You have super high latency and, and low bandwidth. This is low latency, high bandwidth. Mm. So it's just like the ultimate uh, what it's always should have been, but just had never been economically viable. And now it is, and now everyone wants to do it. Right. So it's it's really having the technological infrastructure to create sufficient economics incentives so that privatization pri- private companies could actually advance space, well, make their play into the space industry. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, if you look at like the first transcontinental railroad or something, you know, um, it wasn't that any new technology really came about. It's not like, oh my gosh, we invented how to make a railroad better, you know, or whatever. It's just, it was a matter of like, yeah, yeah, make train go far, like (laughs) new technology. It was really just, we finally just did it. We buckled down, we, you know, cleared all the land and did all the stuff and did it. And the space industry was kind of the same way, like just kind of chugging along of like, eh, we're just kind of doing what's necessary. There was little, there just wasn't even a big enough piece of a pie for anyone to really sit there and go, hey, we're going to try and make this 10 times cheaper. Because it's like, well, people are paying $180 million to send this satellite up. And there's only about three a year anyway. So good luck, you know, with that pie. And for a little while, SpaceX wasn't getting these big contracts because it's like there just weren't any. There mm-hmm. weren't enough flights. Like they had a cadence of a capability of what they, I mean, they're, they just launched 80 Falcon 9s this year already and it's only November. Yeah, last year they launched more mass to space, to, to orbit than China. Than the, re, than the whole rest of the world oh, combined. Oh, really? Yes. Damn. And I think this year they're like, for mass to orbit, I think it's like, like two or three times. I mean, it's just, it's insane. And when, but when they were first, like, you know, I remember them fighting so hard to just get these occasional, uh, you know, Department of Defense contracts and stuff. And it was like, you know, pulling teeth because there just weren't that many things. But now all of a sudden it, the price has come down so much and they're so much cheaper than all their competitors that they're getting not only all those Department of Defense contracts, but also like all of the 
people trying to fly to space are basically like doors open, you know? Mm. So it's, it's, oh, it's changed the game. And now people can afford to develop satellites because instead of it being, you know, $180 million entry price, you can do rideshare missions and, and get something up, you know, for a million dollars, which just simply was not possible. It feels like there's a portion of people who are still, um, kind of dismissive or they dislike the idea that space is becoming privatized. Um, and they still think that it, you know, it should be government led. What would you say to that? I think they don't quite have a perspective of like what that means. I think, I think a lot of people think, oh good, I'm glad that NASA, they sold NASA to Elon Musk. Like I hear that kind of, I literally mm. will read a comment like that. I'm like, you, like that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't compute. You know, it's like, please restate your question. Cause that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Um, people are, are misunderstanding the, the thing that right now SpaceX is doing is they're selling a launch service. They're the UPS or the FedEx truck, you know, and previously NASA was building their own truck and shipping things across country for 10 times the cost of, of just throwing it on a UPS truck. So, you know, it's kind of like if the DOT decided, Hey, we're going to build cars. Like everyone would be like, that's insane. You don't need to build cars. And, you know, in the past, Rocket technology was so cutting edge, so hard, so big investment that no one could feasibly build a large orbital rocket. And, no, and people tried and they, they couldn't, you know. And then now the floodgates have opened up. And guess what? Like through competition and through privatization, it's the, again, the cost has come down so much that now it's way cheaper for NASA to just catch a ride with somebody than to develop their own rockets and manage their own fleet. And that's, and that's exactly when the space shuttle program ended. The whole point, and NASA did everything absolutely right. The shuttle was insanely expensive. It was relatively dangerous. And it was absolutely not getting like cheaper. You know, like it was just, it is what it is. And they basically said, look, this is costing us way too much. If we ever want to go back to the moon, all of our budget is stuck on the, the shuttle. We're going to cancel the shuttle. We're going to open up the commercial resupply contracts. We're going to open up a commercial sector. And we're going to basically like let people bid. They're going to do cost plus contracting instead of fixed price contracting. So basically like, hey, we're going to pay you $200 million for the service. If you can't do it for $200 million, then like that's your money, period. Like mm-hmm. if you can't do it, you're going to lose money. And that's exactly what they did. And that's how the commercial resupply program came up. That's how the commercial uh, astronaut crew program came up. Um, and it's been a huge success, at least for SpaceX and at least for NASA. Are you concerned that they're of... It does feel like SpaceX have such market dominance that it could almost get to the point of a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned about that? Do you think that anything could or should be done to mitigate that, or it's just not a problem? Not yet. Um, there's a lot of companies that are racing to catch up, and of course, the scary—I mean, the scary thing is SpaceX is so far ahead that it is easy, you know. It is easy to look at like how can anyone catch up, frankly. Mm. I mean, it's insane. Like it's 80 launches a year and 200 landings in a row and boosters being reused 18 times now. It's just absurd. And one start, and that's not even talking about Starship, which is like once that's online and operational game over, then we might have to have a conversation, you know, in a few years when they've completely, you know, but I don't know what you do about it. Like, do we decentivize it? Because like they're kicking so much butt and they're doing things so much cheaper, but the point is, there's definitely, like, I think Blue Origin, when they finally, like, wake up from sleeping giant mode and start launching New Glenn, which should be 
I, I'm going to say in the next six months. People might laugh at that. I think in the next six months, there's a good chance we see New Glenn fly and it's orbital and it's already operational like right away because they're kind of doing a little more. And is more. that going to be like a Falcon 9 type? It's, it's more capable than Falcon Heavy. Oh, wow. So they're leapfrogging. They're not like, they're not going for, they, you know, like they went Starship from these little itty bitty. It's seven meters wide versus Starship's nine meters right. wide. It's not going to be fully reusable from the get-go, but there are talks of it being fully reusable. And it's, I think it's 45 metric tons to low Earth orbit, which is like what, what Falcon Heavy is capable of. I mean, it is, and it's, it's re, the first stage is reusable. I mean, it's definitely like, we're talking about a massive rocket that they're developing and people just don't understand like, that they're not SpaceX, they're not doing the SpaceX approach of just building something, a minimum viable product, and then launching it and seeing what went wrong, try it again. But when it does go online, I think that will actually be proper competition for at least Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. Um, but if if they don't succeed and get that going online soon, I mean, yeah, back to the whole monopoly question, it's, it's hard not to argue that SpaceX will have a complete monopoly on mm. on most of the market. I do think this might be one ex- situation where that's okay. Right. It doesn't it's like, what's feel, the other option? Like, like, okay, it's not ideal, but it's like we don't have another option. And ultimately, they are providing the infrastructure that no one else can provide. It's the, not like the humanity urgently needs. It's not like so, they're buying everyone else that was their competitors. Right. And that's why they're. No, the monopoly. They're, it's not because it's just because they are just simply better. It's, and it's like a new uh, thing. They, yes, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a new realm. It's like, okay, yeah, someone's going to get there first. But like, what do you want them Imagine to do? Imagine if, like, like, you know. Oh, okay, I guess we can't go there because no one else is also. Yeah, top. Like, it's like, you know, the come, Wright come brothers is like, hey, you guys. Have a monopoly on yeah. flying for the first time. Like, don't, don't take off. You're done. Yeah. No, yeah, that's it. No more planes. We gotta wait. We gotta yeah. wait until someone else can do it better than you. But they can't do it until I've shown them how to do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's it's a bit. It's just like a false. Uh, I think it's just a false argument, really. But for yeah. now, I could see where you know, if it becomes anti-competitive and it comes to the point where it's hurting, you know, I don't know. It seems silly. Like I can't imagine where how that would happen currently. I mean, again, 20, 30, 40 years, the market might be totally different. But um, and and there are, like Rocket Lab is working on a Neutron, which is very similar to Falcon Nine capability. In my opinion, that's probably still two years away or so. But it's that's what's scary is like they and they're in my opinion like one of the most likely to succeed because they've had such a good track record so far. And if they can't do it, you know, besides them and then Jeff Bezos's billions of dollars with Blue Origin, like where else? How can right. someone else do it at this point? Like it's scary because it's. Because we're not talking about like there's so many people trying to do small sat launchers that can launch, you know, hundreds or maybe a thousand kilograms to low Earth orbit, where Fal- while Falcon Nine can do sixteen thousand eight hundred kilograms and be reusable. So we're not even talking about like the same scale of rocket. Mm-hmm. And there's hundreds of these startups doing a small scale that are all you know looking at like that five, ten, fifteen million dollar price. Right. It's like comparing a jumbo jet to a Cessna. Hundred percent. Like, like no more jumbo jets. We're just gonna use Cessna. Just use Cessnas. Right. What kind of yeah. And now obviously there there could be use cases for small sat launchers. Like I don't I think there will be a market for small sat launchers. And especially like if for, you know, as constellations grow and as you have like satellites that are two hundred kilograms, like you're not gonna you're like, oh we gotta replace that one. It's urgent. You're not gonna hire a Falcon 9 to launch two hundred kilograms. You know, it'd be nice to have uh, smaller, more dedicated, you know, like almost an Uber to space instead of a bus, you know. Right. Um, but there's not room for a hundred of those. I don't think many of those will be able to make a transition into a larger market and into the you know super heavy lift categories because there just isn't the margins. There's not the the money, the investment to be able to do that. If Rocket Lab does succeed in going from a small launch provider to a medium and that is successful, then I think they'll be one of very few that's able to make that transition. Are you concerned about the militarization of space? 
if we wanted to blow ourselves up, we could do it right now. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing. We already use rocket technology to deliver nuclear weapons across anywhere in the world. Mm. Having them be in space doesn't really change the game too much, in my opinion. It's if we if some bad person hits the red button, we're all screwed, basically. Mm. Um, whether or not they're in space, I just really don't think changes that game too much. Hypersonics is you know a, a new realm that everyone's talking about. The reason is from space. It, the problem is if say you park uh, nuclear weapons in space. Um, you don't necessarily know if they're going to like deorbit to intercept them. Like they, you know, they don't leave a big like trail of look at me, I'm deorbiting. It'd just be a suddenly you'd be like, wait, why is that one trajectory changing? You might not have time to like intercept it. As opposed to an intercontinental ballistic missile, someone launches it, you go, you see this big thermal trail, right? Lobs you it just up, just follow it. Yeah, you follow it. You know where it's just going. Math. It's yeah. math, and you can intercept it, and that's like what you know our whole defense system is based on. Hypersonics do something else. They're not nearly as fast as rockets, as fast as like an orbital rocket or an ICBM. But, you know, they might fly, I think it's like five to seven times the speed of sound. But they can stay low enough that you can't like see them coming. You know, like you... I see. They're not actually following a ballistic trajectory. Or right. They're, they're flying they're in staying, the atmosphere. They're staying within the atmosphere. Yes. And they are like course correcting. Yes. And they're so fast, you can't really shoot them. It's like a SR-71 times three. Like, how do you shoot it down? You know, and by the time it comes over the horizon, it's too late. Like you're not gonna. I see. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's where, like, to me, that's creepy. That's what, and that's Russia and China already have hypersonic uh, technologies. That's gonna fuck up MAD, right? <laughs> the, the 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 Nash equilibrium of game theory. It, yeah. It prevents you from having um, a defense. Re, re, yeah, retaliatory strike. Yeah. Which is what keeps that equilibrium stable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you can't no longer do that, now we're in a bad situation. Yeah. So is space, am I worried about the weaponization of space? In the same way I am about weaponization of anything. Right. I mean. Bioweapons, whatever. is. We've got plenty of ways of killing ourselves at this point. It's like, it's just another one. Okay, so is there some kind of competitive activity, though, in space that you don't want to see? I don't love uh, light pollution, like night light pollution. Starlink initially was a big concern there. I was not happy about that as like, now we're going to have 40,000 satellites that look like stars at night. Like, right, scooting about. Scooting about. <laughs> I don't know if you've you seen Starlink. I, so, so, <laughs> it, was in, it was during lockdown. I remember I was in, mm-hmm. in the UK and my mom called me. and She was like, go outside. There's something really weird happening. I was like, what? And I look up. And then you know, every 15 seconds, there's this little, there's a, like another one. And there's like a line of what looks like moving stars. You know, I've seen plenty of satellites in my yeah. life. I was like, these look like satellites, but they're like, they're so regular. Yeah. And there's so many of them and they're just in a line. And what? And I, I, and I was like, ah, it's Elon. It's got to be, wait, yep. wait. And I was like, let me, let me tell you. Yes. Okay. It's, they've just done a Starlink launch and yep. they're just slowly letting them out. And like, so yep. they're much more visible in the beginning because they haven't gotten to their final orbit. Yes. And, um, and I mean, honestly, it was really cool to see. Yeah, it is actually. But I can totally sympathize with astronomers who are just like, this is all sky. Yes. Come on. To set the record straight too, I don't think people understand. Like they, they imagine that the Starlink, because they see a, an image or two, they see a little TikTok of like this string of lights. And they're like, oh, this is what the night sky looks like now? No. no. It's only very certain conditions. And it's specifically, it's only visible to the naked eye like an hour after uh, after sunset and an hour before sunrise or so, in the right conditions, after you know, before they're in their final altitude or you know, with their they have a sunshade now, all of these conditions have to be met. 
It's not like you're just going to see look up at the night sky and see you know five thousand fake you know stars moving around ruining your visibility of the night sky. But um, it could have it could have been they did a lot of things that you know coated them with really dark paint, put these sunshades on, they reoriented them away so it doesn't reflect. And you know because again once you're outside of that one hour before, after sunset and one hour before it's you're in the shadow of the earth anyway. They they're not like they they don't create their own light. They only reflect the sunlight. Right. So at some point they're just in the shadow of the earth. So you can't see them anyway. You can't see them anyway. But it can still mess up uh, you know ground based observations even though they're not reflecting light anymore. They can still block light from you know an observation from a ground based telescope. And I do see it as like that sucks. In the same way that it really sucks to me that like cell phone adoption rate is high, higher than like self-driving cars. This is a weird analogy. Sorry, I'll, I'll try. Oh, to I love it. Go. So it's a, in the grand scheme of like human history, it's going to be a, a shame that so many people died from distracted driving, of because everyone had cell phones and driving around, not even looking at crashing and killing people. Right. At the same time, we're also working on self-driving cars, and someday that's going to be a solved thing. Like no one's going to be like. Oh, it's just, you know, like you, you, you can't imagine a world where you can't be in the car, like, you know, texting or being on your phone, like, right. But at the same time, Starlink, bear with me, Starlink uh, has the ability to, you know, and spaceflight has the ability to bring ground based observations into space, where space observations, James Webb, uh, you know, Hubble Space Telescope, TESS, like all these satellites are absolutely incredible. Because there's no optical distortion in space and blah, blah, blah. Space flight is getting cheaper. We can start sending more and more satellites up. Boom, like astronomy is going to be a million times better because of space assets. But at the current moment... We're in that awkward transitions. <laughs> yeah, we're in this awkward like, transition yeah. thing. We're like, the space, the, the access to space is kind of ruining astronomy. But in the future... It's going to make it actually much make better. make it way better. Yeah. And that's and, not an excuse for it, but it, it is just the reality of like where that will go. There's been some really cool treaties that inspire international collaboration um, coming out through the space industry. You know, you had the Outer Space Treaty in, what was that, 1967? Something like that. Um, Treaties aren't right. They're not your thing? Okay, well, we're going to talk about that anyway. Please teach me. uh, (laughs) There was that one. uh, There's the Artemis Accords. Yeah, yeah. Now that I'm familiar with, yes. Let's explain what the Artemis missions are, first of all. Sure, the Artemis missions are basically the follow-up to the Apollo program. It's basically uh, our generation's version of returning to the moon, finally. And it's it's NASA-led, but it is internationally collaborated with ESA and... Uh, the, you know, the Canadians and all of the, I mean, like basically everyone has hopped on this. I think we're at like 30 some countries now mm. um, who have agreed to uh, take part in it. And by taking part, that's a little bit confusing to me, but a lot of people are like literally providing, like someone will help provide batteries or someone will, you know, uh, build a pressure vessel and all these things and propulsion modules and all these different pieces of what will first be um, the gateway, which is going to be a new uh, a new space station that's in orbit around the moon. That's like a big part of the Artemis program. And I think it's kind of an excuse to like find a way to collaborate together. And then the other part is the, uh, the Artemis program has the Orion capsule and the human landing system and the space launch system. And it has the ability to get humans on the surface of the moon for the first time again in 50 some years. Yeah, so I mean, this, this is a big deal, like getting 31 countries on board. I have China signed it? I'm pretty sure Russia has not and China has not, but I would actually love to see more international collaboration because I think it does. Um, that's that's one of those things that will kind of make me cry. July 17th, 1975, when the United States and the Soviet Union, in the middle of the Cold War, docked two spacecraft together 
shook hands, shared a meal, and literally had a joint mission together. And although it was like the tiniest little bit of like, of anything, it was like the most collaboration the two countries had done, you know, since the start of the Cold War. And I don't know if that did anything in the real long term, but just the, even the, and people will be cynical about it just being like a fluff piece. I don't care. Like it really did represent some collaboration, some work together, and an opportunity to see each other eye to eye for the first time in, you know, at that point, 30 years or whatever. I mean, if we can look at a thousand runouts, let's assume, let's say we are in a simulation. I'm not saying we are, but like, uh, let's run a thousand simulations mm-hmm. of our history throughout the, 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 the 20th century. I would bet greater than zero of those would have ended up in a much worse space from like some kind of nuclear escalation had it not been for that. Right. Very well could have been. Yeah. You know, like that's a really big deal. And that's, I think, a testament to, again, like science and engineering. Yes. It bridges those gaps. Yes. It's one of those few things. It's like, I think because ultimately most humans at at their core are nerds Mm -hmm. and we like to achieve and like solve hard problems. Mm -hmm. And you can know, like um, a friend of mine, Anders Sandberg, he he has this term, uh, nerd sniping. Where it's just like, you need to distract someone like who's like getting all wound up about something, just throw them a like you know, nerd snipe them with a really hard problem that just happens to appeal to their yeah, yeah, yeah. particular flavor of nerdism. Yep, yep. Um, I think that's kind of what you have to do when these like uh, hostile countries, you know, get a little bit warmongery, just give them a nerd snipe. Yes. And like, oh, and I guess what, you can like step out and work on this together. It's even better. It's such a yes. win-win solution. Yes. So how do we nerd snipe? Um, yeah, how do we nerd snipe China and Russia to get them to join the Artemis Accords? That's a great question because they're kind of going on. They're starting to become more buddy buddy. Currently, China has never truly collaborated. Like they have, they have their own space station that's growing and and they're doing great. Although they did have a uh, a spacecraft tumble the other day. But I think I think I guess I've actually heard now. I think about it that everyone's fine. But they've been you know kicking butt and and growing and doing things that you know they're catching up and they have plans to go to the moon. Um, you know, they're becoming more and more friendly with Russia. In my opinion, like those bonds are a good thing. It mm-hmm. la- uh, will get, it will accelerate both programs, you know, and it'd be a shame to not, to not work together on these things because. It's just getting humans on the moon again. It's yeah. great. I mean, that's the thing, like China and Russia get humans on the moon. Okay, good. Like humans on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would love that. Honestly, like, and I, a part of me is really sad that like this didn't happen in like the eighties or nineties that China or Russia didn't already put humans on the moon. Just so it's like, we can still, the human humanity can still do this thing. It's not just like a one-off thing that we threw all the money in the world at and like now no one cares about it again. Like it just kind of would have been cool in the, in the timeline if like it kind of happened again and again and just until it became like more normal or something. But the fact that it only happened, you know, on six missions with humans on the moon, 12 humans have walked on the surface of the moon. It just feels like it was so fleeting. And the fact that it, stalled for so long after that what other industry has done that they achieved something huge and then it's like eh, okay done now done let's go back to what we're doing you know so weird it's almost like like a, some kind of parasitic force just like <laughs> distracted us or something took us yeah. away from well and sadly the space shuttles the promise of the space shuttle could have ushered in a new era it really because the idea was space shuttle especially in its original concept, was going to be fully reusable and therefore make spaceflight cheaper and more routine, more airliner-like. Yeah, that's the things they were claiming with the space shuttle. And unfortunately, like because uh, politics and 
the fact that like it's you know designed by committee and half the time Congress ended up being like, we think this one's better because it's cheaper. You know, like uh, it ended up, and the big thing actually, the one of the biggest reasons the space shuttle is the way it is is because the Air Force had very specific missions planned for it where they were going to launch out of California. They wanted to be able to retrieve Soviet satellites from orbit within one orbit with the space shuttle. So 90 minutes, you had to launch, get out of the, like open up the thing, grab a satellite, bolt it in, close it up, and land. And then because the Earth is rotated, you know, roughly by that point, roughly 1,500 miles or Mm -hmm. 2,500 kilometers or whatever, to the east, it has to have enough cross-range capability to be able to still come back and land on a runway back where it took off from near Vandenberg Space Force Base. And that's why the Delta wing, like the wings of the, the space shuttle were the size they were, is to literally be able to do this absurd mission that there's no chance it could have ever happened. Like it was just so improbable. So it just had a design flaw from the outset. Just had a design flaw of like, well, we'll say, we'll give you guys $400 million as long as you can get these satellites out of the sky. And like, it was just never going to happen. And if you look up pictures, they even in the right before Challenger, so 1985-ish, they actually had a, the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which is the one that didn't fly. It was just a, a glider prototype, basically. Um, they took that out to Vandenberg. They stacked it with you know boosters. They had it all out there, literally, at Vandenberg to start launching from Vandenberg, potentially. And it's the most beautiful images you'll ever see because this is super... You know, the Space Shuttle launches are always just from flat Florida with the ocean in the background. And all of a sudden, you have this picture of like the mountains, you know, the hills of California, and the space shuttle was sitting there, and it just looks so wrong and beautiful and awesome. And um, and it has U.S. Air Force, like USAF, like on the side of one of the the, the buildings, and it just looks so like alternate history hmm. because it kind of almost is. And then because the Challenger happened, they reevaluated a lot of the space shuttle's design and said like, <laughs> <we're>, oh, sorry, <laughs> like uh, half the stuff that we uh, planned for this launch out of Vandenberg is like infeasible and, and too dangerous. And so they can they canned the whole thing then, and then the space shuttle continued to fly with all of these flaws that were halfly inherited just from this one mission profile that was stupid from the get go, and then also was like so des- inherently designed because they just wanted it to be like the cheaper option when it could have been like. So was that the O ring failure, a downstream effect of that? Do you think? Yeah, well, that just led to like a whole open investigation of like all of the problems with the shuttle. Okay, so just sort of and shed, just, shed light on all of them. Yes, and it just, you know, they they paused all operations for, I don't remember what it was, two years or whatever, and they just looked over like all of these systems. And a lot of new things came about. Like they had to redesign a lot of things. Obviously, the O-ring system on the the, the boosters was a big thing. But even like things of, uh, I don't even remember how, you know, the spacesuits were different because before they basically wore like crash helmets, like non-pressurized and just like a jumpsuit. Like the Challenger crew, if you, it's weird when you look at it now because the first four missions had this really cool suit, the same space suit basically as the SR seventy one, a beautiful like pumpkin suit, and then after that, the fifth, the first operational space shuttle mission, they're just wearing like blue jumpers and like a white crash helmet. Damn, because they just saw it as like this is just a an airplane for space, you know? Right, specialized. Yep, and no big deal, and. after after Challenger, that's when a lot of that stuff like got real. Like that's when they went to the new pumpkin suits and had just a lot more procedures and a lot more safety considerations that should have been there from the get go with humans, um, but weren't. But it's, it's it's a shame though because again, to go way back, sorry. Uh, had the the space shuttle actually probably had the proper budget to work with, and had NASA's budget not gone down in 
you know, a quarter of what it was in, in the 60s to properly develop the space shuttle to be a fully reusable system, it could have been totally different. You know, it could have opened doors instead of closing doors. What's your favorite rocket design? You had to pick one that's just, you think is, it's just beautiful. One. Just one. You can only mm. have a look at that one for the rest of your life. Um, mm, mm. I would almost have to say I'm going to get murdered for this. <laughs> if I had to just stare at one and admire its engineering, the Soviets shuttle. Ooh, <laughs> spicy. Yeah. Why? The Bur- Buran and the Energia rocket. Um, there's something about the way, and this is a video I'm working on, is the way they engineered their version of the shuttle, which was quite literally a knockoff of our shuttle. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they looked at our shuttle and said, let's do that. And like, let's match the capabilities. But they did it in a completely different way. And like, for instance, the main engines on the, had four boosters instead of two. And instead of being solid rocket propellant, which you can't like turn off or, you know, you light those things and they're going no matter what. Um, this had liquid fueled rocket engines. So it had the um, the RD-170, which is the most powerful liquid-fueled rocket engine ever, ever developed. Everyone thinks of the F-1 on the Saturn V. Nope, the RD-170. It has, it's funny because it has four nozzles, but it's one engine. So it's one engine. They just split it up into four nozzles so the main chambers like don't have uh, combustion instability. And, uh, but it's more powerful and way more efficient than the F-1. Just this beautiful engine. They had four of those around this external field. or The, the tank also... You know, on the space shuttle, it had the big orange fuel tank. Right. The big orange fuel tank had no engines. The engines were attached to the orbiter, which is genius. I think that was the right move. But the Soviets just stuck four uh, Hydrolox engines that were almost identical, very similar, a little simpler than the RS-25, which was on the space shuttle. And the idea, though, was eventually they're going to have the 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 Bron was basically so the the shuttle itself from the Soviet Union was basically at the end of the day a reusable giant like flying fairing like you know payload fairing where you can hide hold the satellites and then a capsule and then you can return it all that's reusable but the rest of the rocket initially was thrown away whereas opposed to the space shuttle at least like you had that but you also saved your main engines but they had plans to make it so the the uh so for sure if it got to the point of like the Buran 2.0 where the whole thing would have been reusable all four boosters would have extended wings after they like detached and glided back oh. down to the lot, like launch site and the main like the main core thing basically was like a space shuttle of its own and was going to fly back down like it would have been the coolest thing in the world and i just think it's so i mean yeah i just think it's so cool and the Buran had the option of having jet engines on the orbiter so it could actually there's it could actually fly like on its own right in in the atmosphere in the atmosphere wow. so it would, the main thing it would end up doing for space missions would it could have had the possibility of extending its its downrange especially when you're launching in in Russia or Kazakhstan you're such high latitude that uh, your orbits might not always realign like for your landing site so you'd have to fly like potentially hundreds or thousands of kilometers or whatever potentially uh, I don't think it would have worked out as well as it could have but. It did have jet engines as a possibility, which I think is super cool. So they always say like rocket science, you, know, you give that as an example of it's like the hardest topic to understand. That and brain surgeons. That's right. Brain, yeah, brain surgery, surgery, rocket science. Yeah. yeah. And yet you have cracked it. So what's, what's your, is it as hard as people make out? And what is your secret? Like how have you 
successful because you're one of the best explainers. You've made you've made like hour long videos that managed to break down the engineering of these incredibly complex machines in very digestible ways. And to do that, you know, I've done this myself trying to do explainer videos. You have to really internally understand it. So it's not like you're just like blundering your way through. You get this stuff. So what has been your method of going about learning it? Well, first off, I'm far from an actual expert in rocket science. Like truly, I, and I'm not saying that to be like humble or anything. It's just, I, I finally, I think of it the point of the Dunning-Kruger effect of like knowing how much I don't know. You know okay. what I mean? I think five years ago, I probably would have been like, yeah, you know, I know quite a bit about rockets. And finally I get to the point where I'm like, I don't actually know any of the actual engineering principles, the mathematics, the actual like metallurgy, all of the things that people spend a decade of their career working on a certain like trade. I have no idea. Like that's well beyond me and I will never do that. But the thing that I always operate from is I, it's just pure curiosity of like, I want to know, you know, when a little a toddler just says, why? And then you're like, well, because, the, you know, grandpa and grandma are coming over at five o'clock. You're like, why? Because that's how long it's going to take them to get here. Why? And they have, you know, the never ending why. As I'm like trying to learn a topic, I'm asking myself, why? 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 Right. Why? Why? And I am visualizing it always because I'm a very visual learner. And I'm always trying to think of like, oh, and now these days, as I'm maybe becoming more hardened to it, I'm always trying to preemptively think of people's whys. Why, why, why? You know, hearing that like constantly as I'm in typing. Voice, like, in my voice, I'm like, ah, it's almost maddening. But I like to try to preemptively think of those things. And then not only like, not say like, here's the answer, now shut up. It's like, here's the answer. Now we're going to make sure you actually understand the answer. Because right now, like for instance, uh, I actually just saw a comment. It was, it was a great comment. It goes, Tim's going, it, this is a, a uh, the video topic is why don't we launch from the equator or from mountains? And someone goes, this is something that could be answered in one sentence, but Tim will drag on for an hour. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, technically the answer is, is one sentence long, you know, but to actually answer why the real reason why and to have someone actually understand it and get it and tangibly take it home and not just get like the little placard of like, this is what it is and why the, the core, the cure, or however you say that Q U. O-R-A website, whatever it is. Cora, yeah. Cora, I've never, yeah, I've just always read it. Cora, instead of like just the one little sentence answer, like we're going to make it so you understand it. Like, and what's that actually take to do that? Even if you don't know what orbital mechanics are, you don't know, you don't quite understand delta V or uh, a nozzle's expansion ratio, all of these things. Okay, we're going to explain those things and then make sure that we can get you from point A of, I always use like my parents as an example, you know, they're in their 60s. And they don't have an interest in spaceflight. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with them. And I'm going to get them to what I know. <laughs> what do I have to do to get from point A to point B? So you have to go really down to first principles. Yeah, presumably each 100%. Time. And I try not to ostracize, like, you know, my audience can be fairly advanced at times, obviously. I have a lot of people that watch that are in the industry and things. So I try not to, like, totally dumb every video down to, like, the very, like, this is a rocket, you know? like. <laughs> but, and, but I also want someone to be able to watch every video from the first minute and not feel like they can't understand it. Mm. So I always do bring it back around. And I try not to do that thing of like, now, if you don't know what this is, watch this video, watch this video, watch this, because you know that's just going to turn people away. I always want to be like that gateway of like, this is a cool topic. Be completely self-contained. Self-contained. You might not know anything about this, but I want you to like just fall into it and not even realize that you did. And all of a sudden you can't stop watching because you actually want to know the answer. And you're like following along because the whole thing is actually storylined to your exact thoughts. Because and even the video, again, it's actually releasing it tomorrow morning. Um, but I just had the review last night for all like supporters, you know, give feedback and all that stuff before it comes out. 
And so when we use um, frame.io, I don't know if you've ever used that. Uh, all the time. Yeah, where people can comment on a timestamp. So like six minutes in, someone's like, oh, you should have mentioned, it's too bad you didn't mention, you know, how the boosters land here and here. Then literally a minute later, oh, you did, you got yeah. it. You know, so like, <laughs> I love that like, I was able to preemptively answer that question. You know, think that this You're is where someone's going to go. well enough. Yes, yeah. that's really the key is just always thinking about like, where are other people at in their journey for knowledge or curiosity? Where am I at? How do I take them along for this ride? Because I'm always like, I'm always still trying to learn and I'm always excited uh, or I'm always thinking about like, not always excited. Sometimes it's, it's grueling, but I'm, I am always curious of like, I know my holes of like information and I have like a long list of a never ending list of things that I do want to make videos on because I want to learn them myself. How do you deal with, are you a perfectionist? Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Because I, that's the thing I struggle with. The good thing with this podcast is that it's just like, okay, I have an editor who helps me now. And it's like, it's a conversation. How complex can we get, right. you know, in terms of like the fiddling around in the post-production. Right. But when I like make my Moloch videos, my God, like I'm, I'm still working on the AI Moloch one, which now like, I don't know, that was meant to come out six months ago. Right. And it just, even the scripting, yep. I, I just, there's always a way to make it better and so on. So yep. like, what's your process there where you're just like, Slap yourself around the face. Go. That's it, Tim. No I'm, more. I'm not the the right one to ask for this because I'm <laughs> very similar. Like it's, I struggle with that so much, and I don't have great output. Like people, I get a lot of criticism. That like, well, I thought, like I see every time I post on YouTube or Twitter, like, oh, you're still around. Oh, you don't make. I thought you'd stop oh, making videos or something. It's like I actually produce like almost a video once or once a month or once every two months, and they're long. So like the amount of time, like a lot of videos are ten minutes long. Mine are 30, 40, 50 minutes long. So I'm actually producing as much content as anyone else. It's just in these really long form, like highly produced videos. But I am like, I struggle big time with the, the scripting. Like I, I care so much about making sure that like every sentence is following that journey of curiosity and helping someone like come along with it. That yeah, I get stuck in it all the time. I get stuck in it. I mean, the Russian, I did a video on all of the Soviet Union's rocket engines and it's an hour and 30 minutes long and it took me two years to, to complete. Like I get it, you know, and and actually, you're saying like, this is a podcast, it's easy. That's one of the reasons that I almost, I used to do a podcast with some friends and I miss it dearly. Uh, but I also kind of like, one of the big pressures for me was I am a perfectionist and I hated when I said things wrong on air because I'm just talking freely. And I'm like, yeah, you know, 1981, you know, like, and then I'll see in the comments, I'm like, oh, I got that wrong. And now, now I'm a, a carrier for misinformation. There's someone right. out there that could have heard me say that, that now is spreading that misinformation. And that's, that's what I'm most worried about. That's my biggest pressure is I just really want my things to be correct. The things that I say, because I know how important it is to, for academic reasons to, you know, speak truth and not just, you know, spread, you know, especially in like aerospace, there's so many misconceptions and so many things that people say just a little bit wrong. That is, I think, just not helping people understand how this stuff works. How big is your team um, with, for Everyday Astronaut? Because like, are you like the main editor or are you doing like mostly the storyboarding or what's? So it's, so it's, it's me. <laughs> and then uh, I have one full-time employee, Mary Liz Bender, Shalinsky, Mary Liz Shalinsky, technically, but Mary Liz Bender was her old name, married to Ryan Shalinsky, who's also a videographer that does uh, a lot of our work down at Starbase with us. Does they, the two of them started, uh, a f their channel was called Cosmic Perspective and it's some of the best most gorgeous high-speed like cinematic photography, videography of rocket launches that I've ever seen. And I've been, you know, I met them doing that too, like shooting launches. And I'm like, yeah, the best, the best people. 
and and the best at what they do. And um, so I've been working with them for years. And now as of this year, Mary Liz works for Everyday Astronaut full time. But we kind of are partnering now with Cosmic Perspective so that, um, you know, it's almost like I, I don't want Ryan to not do his work of his beautiful video videos that he makes. But we have so much overlap in like creating, capturing content and capturing these launches. So we're partnered. And that's really exciting. So I have the, the Shalinskys. Um, I also have a co-editor um, who does is doing a lot more of the actual animations now. I actually really like the animations. I like doing After Effects and stuff, um, but he's just way better at it, <laughs> way faster too. Uh, and we're starting to do way more and more like 3D work. And his name's Spencer. He's awesome. And and because my video content is not like so frequent, it's like you know these people are just kind of on call almost. You know, so Spencer. Uh, someday you know he might have a month of twiddling his thumbs, and all of a sudden two weeks of scrambling, like working. I'm sure like. 40 extra hours on top of his other job, you know, to do video production. Then there's Casper Stanley, who also does 3D work. And then uh, that's pretty much it for the production side. We also have a, a team of writers that contribute to the website because we do launch articles and stuff at everydayastronaut.com. And uh, yeah, that's about seven or eight or nine people that contribute, that are paid contributors. So that's the team. Oh, and then and my girlfriend, Allie, is the graphic design. So she does like oh, wow. all of like everything. The reason that I think the branding awesome. of Everyday Astronaut, like she should be top because I think she's actually the reason that Everyday Astronaut is cool, like in my opinion, instead of just nerdy, like actually I think has coolness to it is because of her artwork. So and her her guidance in that realm. So yeah, that's the that's the whole crew. Would you describe yourself as a competitive person? Yeah, I'm pretty competitive, yeah. What are the things that bring out your competitiveness? Like does YouTube bring it out? Yeah, I, I'd be wrong to say it. It doesn't because I've always played this like in my mind. I really genuinely do think like the more channels we have, the better of like space flight. I think that just really helps raise awareness, helps raise, make everyone excited about the stuff, provides coverage. But of course, when there's like other live streams with Starship, like some of my best friends, you know, work at NASA Space Flight, which is, right. you know, one of the 24 7 amazing live coverage of every launch and Lab Padre. And other YouTube channels that are that are space channels, you know, um, they're in a way we're competitors, of course, like just by nature. And of course, sometimes I have to look at like how did their stream do? And I'm like, crap, they kicked our butt. They absolutely dominated, you know. And and all that does for me though, like I'm I am fortunately one of those people that like I see that. And sometimes I okay, those around me will say it's not always true. <laughs> but in general, like after it soaks in and after I'm like, I want to quit and never do this again because our stream crashed in the middle of it, you know, and blah, 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 and all of our stuff failed. And, and I just spent three weeks setting this thing up and, and $500,000 or whatever it is, yeah, not that much, but uh, you know, trying to capture this launch, then we failed and it sucks and everyone's yelling at me, I want to quit. And then like, I see the success of what other people are doing. I'm like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Like, come on, I'm already, we're this close. Let's, let's go. You know, I kind of like pick myself back up usually. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am very competitive with that, but I'm also just like, I, I like games and stuff too, so. In 30 years' time, no. What do you think the world will look like, assuming we don't do something really stupid with AI or uh, nuclear weapons? It's going to be tw- 30 years' time, will be 2053. Where do you think we will be at in terms of space exploration? I, I know, based on the trends, that, uh, you know, access to space will be way cheaper. I mean, way more attainable. There will be hundreds or thousands of people who live and work in space. 
you know, I just think that would be normal. Like even in thirty years' time, it's so yeah, soon. I, th- I think in thirty years' time, we'll definitely have like hundreds of people in space at a at a time, and maybe not like staying there at all times, but like you know, well, we have between, a permanent moon base, maybe a small one, small permanent moon base, but permanent to the point of it being like not self sustaining or anything like that, really? you know, but but more or less constantly have inhabited and or. You know, there might be like months stint before another crew arrives or something. But I think there would be some kind of permanent, permanent thing, like maybe you know, a small habitat or something, but a, a place where they continually go and not just like land on the moon in one spot and then take off and never go there again. But a, a spot and it's on the south pole of the moon seems like the most where we're going with everything. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we'll have multiple commercial space stations. I mean, they're already coming online. I know of three or four companies that are like literally building hardware to build like Axiom, Axiom, right? Vast. Um, I mean, I, I'm blanking right now, but I literally there's like four that are like building and bending metal right now to to launch on rockets to put up commercial space stations. And of course, if Starship becomes what Starship could be, and even in ten or fifteen years, flying to space will be way cheaper. Putting things in space will be way cheaper. Um, you know, a hundred plus metric tons in one launch for five or ten million dollars, and we're talking space hotels. We're talking space tourism. All of a sudden, you know, you have the capability. People forget the inside of Starship, and this is Starship like as it is now. Let alone like as it gets evolved and tweaked and grows inevitably. Uh, whatever physics deems is like more efficient and better use of the you know the launch location and the 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 launch licenses and the airspace, you know, all of that, like at some point it's just like, how much can we put up in the single stick basically, right? And Starship will grow. But right now as it stands, the, the habitable or like the, the, the space, the pressurized space in Starship is over a thousand cubic meters, right about a thousand cubic meters. And that's more pressurized volume than what's on a 747. And most of us have probably at least have a sense of how big a 747 huge. is. It's like an apartment building. It's a flying condo. Like it's like, it's huge already. It could easily, like if you just crammed it full seats, it could easily hold 500 people comfortably. So the thought of if that thing's flying regularly, if that thing is like doing what it's designed to do, uh, and if it continues to evolve, the thought of 400 people getting on a rocket and going to a giant space hotel is not at all unfeasible. And do you think people will be on Mars 30 years' time? Mm-mm. Because I was actually just talking about this with, uh, with Jared Isaacman and Jack from NASA Spaceflight on a podcast last week that um, what will t- boots on Mars will look so much different than boots on the moon because the moon is like a week can get you to the moon and back, you know, and, and l- walking around on the moon and back, you know what I mean? Uh, Mars, because of planetary alignments and because of how far away it is, is just no matter what, it's about a two-year journey. And a good year of that will be on the surface of Mars. So you have to be able, you can't just land and go, whoop, let's go back. You have to be able to live and sustain life on Mars. You need to send a bunch of infrastructure out first. There has to be infrastructure. Or like in the case of Starship, you know, again, if we land something the size of Starship, a thousand cubic meters, a small skeleton crew, five people could live inside that thing quite comfortably. It would be its own habitat. Now, the problem with Starship is now you're landing a giant, huge thing that takes an insane amount of propellant, thousands of tons of propellant. And yes, we can, we've developed, NASA actually has already shown that we can produce oxygen out of uh, using the Sabatier process on the surface of Mars. Like they have produced 
oxygen, which is a great step in in the direction of like being able to sustain. Where you get life. the methane from? So methane, yeah, they 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 use the Sabatier process to take uh, water, uh, ice water, and water and um, and CO two in the air to combine to split off into oxygen and liquid methane. And assuming there's a water source or ice water or brine water, or whatever it is, uh, in the slopes of of Mars, uh, yeah, you can refuel Starship. But that's a huge undertaking. Like that's insane. So you'd probably want to land some before then with specialized equipment and start doing all that stuff. And then by the time humans land there, there's already one sitting there fueled up, literally ready to go even, would be the way I'd want to do it, <laughs> which I don't want to do. I do not want to go to Mars. But uh, if I were designing the system, I would, have, I would not send a human crew until there was literally a fueled up, ready to go Starship and, and have demonstrated that already. Right. So right there, just in like logistics there, if you think about a timeline. That's like eight years? Literally eight years. Yeah, great mm. estimate. Just in like proving out this technology, but regardless, yes, I think in 30 years there's a chance we'll have had humans on Mars. I actually think by 2040 we should hopefully have humans heading to Mars. The future's bright either way <laughs> yeah. when it comes to space. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's if you look, again look at like the trends of spaceflight and mass to orbit and number of launches per year. It's just it's going exponential. Exponential. Yeah. And satellites in orbit, <laughs> that's like exponential times 10. Like it's already, I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's like, uh, it's hard to keep up with how often SpaceX is launching already. And SpaceX is only one player doing this now, but there will be others. And yeah, then, then it's, the future looks bright as long as we don't have like, a, uh, what's that called? Um, oh my God, I'm blanking on it. Where all the satellites. Oh, like the together. cascade. Yeah. yeah where, where, well, yeah, like um, debris explosion. Yeah, what's it called? Um, Kessler syndrome. As long as you don't have Kessler syndrome, where whereas like there's an there's an impact and it creates a bunch of debris and then and there's that like debris a chain reaction creates more debris. Yes, exactly. yeah, that would suck. That could absolutely halt all spaceflight for decades. And that's actually an example of you know a thing I talk about a lot on this channel is like tragedy of the commons. These these Moloch type problems where it's like short term incentives are yeah like we're getting incentivized to put as many satellites up or you know launch launch things into space, but no one's thinking about the long-term effects if everyone is doing this and don't have the sufficient infrastructure to make sure that these items have like the ability to um you know return to earth when they need to you know like uh decay out of their orbits not in a haphazard chaotic way so you you know it's essentially this strip of this area of space in low earth orbit is extremely valuable and yet humans haven't got a good history of taking care of you know, the commons, essentially, like all the plastic in the ocean or yeah. trash, you know, in, in a city center or whatever. 100%. It's like we need to develop some kind of regulations or systems at least and incentive structures so that um, these this very valuable patch of space is taken care of. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree. <laughs> and uh, it's, it is scary when you, when you start thinking about like, we're, luckily we are doing there are talks, there are people actively working on, uh, like, as a matter of fact, there's a first fine for having space debris. Um, I don't remember who it was now, but just about a month ago, I, I, I was one of the, like, old school, uh, I don't remember, uh, got, a, a, like, a $175,000 fine for having a satellite that they couldn't send out into the graveyard orbit from geostationary orbit. So normally, like, at the end of a, you know, geostationary orbit's, like, 38,000 kilometers away or whatever. It's way out there. And, you know, the satellites are all basically always orbiting with the Earth. 
And it's too hard to bring them back from there because mm-hmm. it would take a lot of energy to be able to reduce the orbit back down to Earth. So instead, they actually just kick them out in like a graveyard orbit and they just know that they won't run into anything else out there because who cares? And uh, this company, I, f- I wish I remembered who it was, right? Like DirecTV, I think is actually who it was. And they, they had a satellite totally, they couldn't, they didn't fulfill the duty of getting it into a graveyard orbit and they got the first fine um, in history of like creating space debris. So who's the body that is making these, you know? Great question. Because that's, that's the thing we need to have. Like, we'll need some kind of, you know, again, I hate the idea of, like, centralized power. I hate the idea of bureaucracy right. and unnecessary rules, and we don't need them. But this is an example. Like, if you don't have these rules to protect this shared space, yes. this is very shared resource. Yes, 100%. Very valuable thing that if if we pollute it too much and get this Kessler effect, we won't be able to leave the damn planet. Yes. That's it. We'll and lose. no one will have, like, it's, like, it's not like, oh... You ruined, uh, you know, your access to space. It's like you ruined no. everyone's access to space. Yeah, and classic tragedy of the commons type situation. Yes. So yeah, it's we'll need some kind of, um, you know, and I, I society plays cat and mouse as like a you know new technology emerges that makes this new problem uh, come along. Right. We'll create some kind of governing body or some kind of solution incentive better, structure, yeah. but yeah. we 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 don't have it right now, and we need to do that. Mm-hmm. And but I think there are there's talks on that, and again, this is this type of stuff. I don't often like. And my channel is generally like so, like figure out the physics and make it fun. And like I don't like to think about these existential existential things that are like crises, and you know, and and also just uh, I don't I don't love like politics slash uh, I don't know what would you consider that like a well it's, it's like a it's a governance thing yeah like it's that's governance. not that's not the type of thing that I that gets me excited every day you know so I, I generally don't learn a lot about those topics. But they are extremely important. And I'm glad there are people that are, <laughs> are thinking ahead and thinking about that stuff before it's too late, hopefully. Are there any cool everyday astronaut projects on the horizon that people might not know about? Mm, there's always, always things we're working on. There's so many things like behind the scenes, and I'm, I'm really excited. There's one in particular, uh, as an Austin, a member of Austin, Texas, and a member of uh, the world, because this is an open invite to anyone uh, not just those in Austin, but it will happen in Austin. We're doing our first Astro Awards here in Austin, Texas, um, next year in 2024. And the Astro Awards is, it's been like a kind of, almost like a gimmick or a joke on the channel. Every year, uh, January 1st, we give out an award. It's not a physical award, but we should have done it as a physical award forever. But we they kind of like do 10 nominations of really cool spaceflight things. Like we, you know, just basically we want to cheer on and celebrate exciting things that happen in spaceflight and in space science uh, throughout the year. So I've always said since literally the first time we did it in 2018 that, hey, someday this will be an in-person award ceremony and we're going to bring the people from these missions up on stage and cheer for them and be excited about the work that they did. And we're finally making that happen. Such a good idea. Because yeah. doesn't, like the industry deserves that. There's yes. so many unsung heroes. Yes. And... Again, it's the spirit of healthy competition. I mean, it's... 100%. I, I don't know how much of a competitive process it'll be for the awards, but I mean, essentially it is. It's giving something for people to aspire to and get recognition beyond just like actually getting the job done. Right. And I don't think like, I don't think there's going to be a single person out there in the world that's like, I hope this deserves an... A- like maybe this mission I'm creating is going to be an Astro Award. You know, like I don't yeah, think it's ever that. But I do really just believe that there's an opportunity. And the biggest thing for me is to get the public involved in spaceflight. I I think there's never really been a good opportunity to have like conferences that are public and industry people coming together where the public can ask people questions, you know, and and see these people that they've maybe seen on on the internet or they know their work and they're just excited to see these people in person and um 
I, again, I know that the people aren't necessarily doing these things for the recognition, but there's so much incredible things that are advancing humanity, advancing our knowledge, and advancing our, our species that I th- would love to get them up on a stage. And, and, sh- and not only them, but also like what we've always done is like a two, three, four, five minute rundown on what the mission is. So people just get a chance to uh, have their, their programs heard, maybe sometimes for the first time. Um, but to, to be able to do that in person, I think will be really, really fun. The date's not official yet. Um, we're still nailing down. We had uh, some some follies when trying to book things, but uh, we're getting really close. And it will be a Sunday matinee thing. So it will be hopefully something that um, people can fly into for the weekend, make a weekend out of it, and still get home at it. Sometime early next year. Sometime in January 2024, hopefully. Um, we'll hopefully know more by the end of this week. But And what can people do to... Sign up or come um, Hopefully by next week. As soon as we have the, the venues actually officially nailed down, like signed and deposited, and it's like in the books for sure because we've had rugs pulled out from us. But as soon as it's done, we will have everydayastronaut.com slash astro awards. We'll be, and that's astro, A-S-T-R-O, awards. We'll be live on our website and we'll have a way to be able to get more information and eventually get tickets and stuff. But it's coming up. I mean, we're only two months away, so uh expect that stuff very soon come? yes you yes. have to come actually right. you don't have a choice absolutely so you'll as soon as i know the dates uh you're it's in your calendar and you have to come and it's going to be really fun and it's going to be awesome we're also going to do a pre-party i think on saturday night uh where it's gonna be live music and people are gonna just get a chance to mingle and party and have fun love it so there we go folks thanks for listening and huge thanks to tim for joining me Ah. I, my brain is just overflowing right now. We, was, we deserve to be among the stars. Come on. It's the way. There's just so much. There's going to be so much good stuff out there. We, we should be living in a sci-fi future. And I think we're going to. Do check out Tim's channel, The Everyday Astronaut. It's so good. I've linked to some of my favorite videos below in the show notes. And of course, if you enjoyed this, you know the drill. Please like, share, subscribe. Until next time, keep on win-winning. 